Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we are releasing a special episode from a project that I undertook in 2022 that I called the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. My intention was to take all of the best clips about one particular topic and put them together as a masterclass to be released behind a paywall with a subscription-based service on Patreon. Well, we didn't have too many subscribers, so I'm breaking these episodes up and releasing them here for free so that they can make an impact and hopefully help some people out there. Today's episode was taken from the second series, all about ketosis and the ketogenic diet. This is part one from the third episode, all about everyday people finding ketogenic diets and using that to fix various health issues, which you will hear about in this episode. We always appreciate any feedback that you might have, so feel free to leave us a comment on YouTube or on our website, that is myboundlessbody.com, where you can always book a complimentary 30-minute session with us at any time. Cheers, and enjoy part one of this two-part conversation all about the ketogenic diet and everyday people. Hello, hello, this is Casey Ruff, and welcome to this, the final part of the ketogenic series on the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. This is part three on part one. We really took a deep dive into the science of ketosis and ketogenesis and what that is and how to pull it off. The second episode, we really focused on medical professionals, people who were in the business of really helping people and couldn't make it work. They were struggling with their own health or the health of their patients and eventually found ketogenic and low-carb ways of living to finally be able to help their patients. This This episode is really all about what I would call quote unquote normal people. We have a few people that we're going to be talking to that are from the health industry, but by and large, most of these people are what I would call citizen scientists. These are people with different jobs and didn't necessarily have a lot of interest in health and nutrition until something went very wrong in their own lives. And I wanted to really highlight and include those stories in this show so that you could really appreciate how much work it takes for somebody to go out and learn about this stuff, how difficult it can be because you're really fighting such an uphill battle with all of the nutrition guidelines that are put out saying that, you know, we need to focus on grains and six to 11 servings of grains a day and lots of fruits and vegetables and things like that. And and you can just see, it just doesn't work with very many people. And these are the people who went out and tried to find a different way and eventually found ketogenic and low carbohydrate diets and found success and were willing to share their message afterwards, which I think is absolutely amazing. We are going to start this episode with some exclusive content from my really good friend, Ben Azadi over at Keto Camp. Make sure you go give him a follow. We really appreciate him and all of his work. He's got a great podcast and here he will describe ketosis and some of the benefits, but he's also going to give some very, very helpful tips, especially when you're first trying transitioning on to the ketogenic diet. I think lots of people have heard of keto flu and Ben is going to do a really good job telling you how to transition onto low carb with the, the least amount of side effects. Mr. Ben Azadi, owner of Keto Camp. How are you today? Casey, I'm doing great. Always a pleasure to jam out with you. Always a pleasure to talk to you. You just had your 38th birthday. Congratulations. Thank you. It was a, it was a great day. I had a, I had a fun celebrating my birthday. And, uh, as we were just talking about offline, yeah, 38 chronologically, but it's really a matter of how healthy are your cells, which is your cellular age, right? And that keeps going backwards for people in this world. I also turned 38 this year. I feel the best that I've ever felt in my entire life. And you see it with all of these people in our world, like Cynthia Thurlow, 51 years old, killing it. Mark Sisson, 69 years old, killing it. Everybody, they look so good. They've got so much energy. It's really amazing. Yeah, you live it to lead it. And to your point, same thing with me. Uh, I feel more energized and healthy and vital 
at 38 than I did when I was 21 years old. Yeah. And uh, that's a testament to the things that we teach and the things that we live to lead. Totally. Yeah. I, you know, I've been reflecting on, you know, anytime I get to talk to you, I always want to talk about gratitude. I know that's one of your big things to talk about. And I've been reflecting today on even just a normal day. Today's, a, you know, Tuesday, pretty normal Tuesday. I trained my clients. I was up at five in the morning without an alarm clock. I've already gotten in uh, 19,000 steps. I've ridden my bike 25 miles. I've done 100 wow. push-ups. It's barely past noon. I haven't eaten a single bite of food. I feel absolutely amazing. And I think you and I can both reflect back what it was like before we found the ketogenic diet, needing snacks all the time. I couldn't go two or three clients in a row without having something to eat, needing naps every single day, feeling pain in my joints or feeling like workouts would take forever to, re to recover from. It's just such a different life that we can take for granted, isn't it? It is. It is absolutely. And I've been there myself, you know, the snacks to get you through the day. And yeah, what you just described is a perfect illustration of somebody who is metabolically healthy, metabolically flexible with the ultimate goal of having metabolic freedom. So Casey just explained that you're at 19,000 plus steps, uh, 25 miles on your bike and training clients up since 5am. It's about noon for you. So you're like halfway through the day. How does Casey do that with so much energy and vitality? It's because he's metabolically flexible and healthy. And that is less than probably 10% of the population in the United States. So we need, to, we need to put a dent in that and change things around because that is the ultimate goal. Casey's using energy from his body fat to produce ketones and fuel the brain and fuel the body. And that's exactly the way we were designed to be. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I, you're the best person to kind of explain that and explain what's going on. For somebody who doesn't know what it feels like to have that type of energy, can you go in a little bit more detail on what it means to be burning fat and using ketones for fuel? Yeah, the biggest the biggest thing that you can do the easy I should say the easiest way to know if you're a sugar burner or if you're a fat burner and the goal is to be a fat burner that's what Casey and I are. Easiest way to know is all right, if you skip a meal, whether it's intentional or accidental, let's say you skip lunch, how do you feel? Do you feel more energized? Do you feel more focused? You're more productive? that's a good sign that you are metabolically flexible. But if it's the opposite, if you actually get hangry, hungry and angry, you're irritable, you're not fun to be around, you can't concentrate, maybe your blood sugar drops, big sign that you are metabolically inflexible and you have some work to do. So what we wanna do is simply eat more protein and fat, drop our total carbohydrates, You know, skip the snacking in between your meals, start with three meals a day. And as you do that, your body begins to adapt very easily. This could happen in seven to 14 days, very fast. And then at that point, you have the ability to switch from burning sugar and burning down your sugar reserves, which is called your glycogen stores, to then switching over to your body fat. And that's all body fat is. It's stored energy. People who are metabolically uh, inflexible don't have the ability to tap into the stored energy. So we want you to get that ability to tap into your stored energy. And you could do that in the next seven to 14 days. It really is remarkable how quickly the body can shift over into that fat burning mode. And, and just understand, like if you've never done that, that adjustment before, it may be uncomfortable in the beginning. If you're literally running your life on just one engine and you're not using this other fat burning engine that Ben's talking about, there might be a period of time where it's going to be a little bit uncomfortable, but you get over it really quickly, especially if you kind of know that's coming and know how to get around it. Um, and then you enter this world of food freedom. You can just go out and enjoy your 
your life. You can eat meals if you like. You can skip meals so much easier if you like. And the body just kind of finds its way of burning fat and staying in that zone. And it's remarkable the results we see with people who try that, who drop fat extremely quickly and feel better within, like you said, 7, 14 days. It's great. And that's really amazing because think about how many years the average person has done damage to their metabolism. It could be 20, 30, 40 years. And you start making little tweaks here and there in seven to 14 days, you'll notice a big, big difference with your energy, your focus, the weight starts to come off. The body fat comes off as a side effect and the body's very adaptable. Now that's not to say there's other things that you should do along the journey rather than just becoming a fat burner, right? That's just the first step, right? Then you start to do things like intermittent fasting, maybe carnivore, and then, but there's different levels to it. The first step is to get your body to burn fat. After that, then you could start going to different levels. Uh, Casey might be on, you know, chapter 21 and you might be on chapter two, right? So don't compare Casey's chapter 21 to your chapter two, just keep graduating each chapter along the way. And that's the ultimate goal. Yeah. So I was just going to ask that for, for the person who is listening to you say, bring my carbohydrates down, increase my animal fats and protein. Like for you and I, we're to a point where that could be pretty easy, but for some people who've always consumed carbohydrates, that might seem very, very difficult. So what tips and tricks do you give people when they are first starting out when they can't even imagine a day without cold cereal and juice and the granola bars and all the, you know, meals and snacks throughout the day? Oh, the good old standard American diet. I've been there. I know you have as well. It's like, geez, I remember eating rice cakes with peanut butter in between meals to keep the metabolism stoked and revved up, right? <laughs> it's crazy what we used to think. The, there's a two-step approach that I'm going to give your audience that I wrote about in my book, Keto Flex. Very easy, very easy to do. So in these two, with these two steps, I would say if we took 100 people listening and out of those 100 people listening... 100% of them took action on this. So 100 people took action. 99 out of the 100 will get into ketosis in the next 14 days without a single symptom with these two steps. So the first step is a gradual decrease in carbohydrate intake. The average American is consuming 300 to 400 grams of carbs per day. Let's just say that's where you are at right now, 300 grams of carbs per day. In order to start burning fat and producing ketones in general, that needs to go under 50 total grams of carbs per day. But I do not recommend going from 300 to 50 in one day. That will lead to symptoms and you might just give up and say keto made me feel awful. So the first step is a gradual decrease. Go from 300 grams of carbs per day to 250 on day one. From 250 to 200 on day two. A, a gradual decrease just like that until you achieve less than 50 total grams of carbs. There's free apps out there that you could track your carbs. It'll give you an exact total. Or you could just go on Google and type it in. Google will give you a total. That's the first step. The second step is hand in hand with the first step. So you do the second step at the same time of the first step. So it's called the 222 rule. Uh, actually, there's four twos, 2222 rule. And what you want to do is consume these healthy fats every day, beginning on day one, so your body could become familiar with burning fatty acids. Those fatty acids are sent to your liver and ketones are produced. That's what we want. As you're dropping carbs, you want to increase these healthy fats. So the first two is two tablespoons of avocado oil or olive oil. The second two is two tablespoons of coconut oil or MCT oil. The third two is two tablespoons of grass-fed butter or grass-fed ghee. And the fourth two is two teaspoons, not tablespoons, but teaspoons of sea salt. Because as you drop insulin, you drop 
water weight, you drop electrolytes. So you want to get that back up with the sea salt. So those are the two steps, gradual decrease in carbs. Number one, two, 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 two rule. Number two, seven to 14 days, you're in ketosis. And here's the question people are thinking right now, because I'm going to answer it. But do you have all of those fats in one meal? No, no. It's throughout the day. It's with your breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Think of the oils you use to cook your meats, your salad dressings, your dips, all of that adds up to that total throughout the day. Wow, that is very smart and a great way to, you know, get into that state of ketosis in a more gradual way. I think about like a swimming pool. This is not taking the the jump off the platform to get into the swimming pool. This is coming in on the shallow end is more likely that you'll get used to the temperature eventually. Now, I heard a lot of those healthy fats, but I didn't hear canola oil. I didn't hear vegetable oil. Why are those not included? Those are healthy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Casey's being facetious. He's being sarcastic. <laughs> Those are highly inflammatory, even if you're doing keto or not. Like those are vegetable oils. They're also called linoleic acid, PUFAs, highly inflammatory. They are, the processing of them makes them very unstable. They create inflammation in your body. They're worse than sugar. Some experts say worse than cigarettes. It's just like almost a guarantee that if you have these, those bad fats every day, you're going to end up with some sort of disease in the next 30 to 50 years. So we don't want that. Canola is not good. Corn, not good. Cottonseed, not good. Soybean, safflower, sunflower, not good. Rice, brent, grapeseed, not good. That's what Dr. Kate Shannon calls the hateful eight. So make sure you're not consuming those. Yeah, Yeah. I love that. I I love a recent video that Dave Champion did where he scrolled all through the, the shelves of a grocery store just filled with vegetable oils. Not one drop of that oil came from a vegetable. Think about that. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> what a, what a, it's a great name marketing wise, but it's not really for like people think, and I've made videos about this. I've gone viral about vegetable oils and I get those comments, but it's from a vegetable. How could it not be healthy? It's like, no, go, go, just go on YouTube for those listening, type in the words on YouTube, how canola oil is made and just watch the processing and you'll never eat it again. Mind blowing. This stuff doesn't even belong in the engine of a car. It is disgusting. Mm-hmm. It is so gross. Wow. Okay. So for somebody who's starting to get really, really good results as they are dropping out the carbohydrates, they're increasing the fats. They're feeling that, that kind of consistent ketosis type energy. What, what would be like a long-term plan for somebody who wants to live that kind of life for the rest of their life? Do they have to remain really strict? Can they work in more carbohydrates later on? What are some things that they can be thinking of as far as like a long-term plan? Yeah, this is, this is a good question. And this is what I believe kind of separates me from a lot of keto educators. And it's a little bit controversial. Like I've spoken at a, a conference before, I won't name them three or four years ago. Um, and it, it kind of went against the message of like staying ketosis forever, right? So they never invited me back because I don't think we should stay in ketosis forever. I think it's one tool. It's an amazing tool we use to reset the metabolism and help our hormones become more sensitive. And eventually it's going to get to a point where I suggest and highly recommend we start practicing keto flexing, which is the doing the work in the beginning. I think most Americans, 88% plus need to do keto, stay in ketosis, be really strict in the beginning and really work on that metabolism. But it gets to a point where you've now built up this metabolic machinery, you've achieved metabolic flexibility, and then it's time to flex. And that simply means we introduce healthy carbs from time to time to go in and out of ketosis. And the amount of carbs that we introduce 
it's not a high carbohydrate diet. It's not back to a standard American diet. It's actually more of like a paleo low carb diet. It's just not low carb enough to enter ketosis. It's like 100 to 150 grams of carbs one or two times per day. I'm just giving you a general like rule here to get yourself out of ketosis and back in, out and back in. And that change, that adaptability, your mitochondria have to adapt, your gut bacteria have to adapt. And that's a good thing because good cells get stronger, bad cells don't adapt. So in general, the way that I teach it, three to four months in ketosis, and then we start flexing. And how flexing looks is going to be different uh, versus a man versus a woman, a postmenopausal woman versus a cycling woman. But in general, a couple days per week where you intentionally flex out. Yeah, no, that's great. I think that makes it really approachable from a long-term sense. People can start to work in more carbohydrates just in a, in a state where they're handling them so much better. The big issue for most people is you just have too many carbohydrates all the time. You mentioned 300 grams of carbohydrates a day. You have about four to five grams of carbohydrate in, in the form of glucose cycling in the blood at any given time. So you can imagine that's a ton of, of you know, carbohydrate energy. Once you get that down, you can start to reintroduce it after you've been more strict, but you also might find, you know, maybe somebody who is a type two diabetic or something, they have maybe just reached their lifetime's ability of handling any carbohydrates at all. And maybe they would want to stay a little bit more strict and they, they could do that as well. Yeah. And there's different ways to flex, right? So to your point, if somebody's type two diabetic and they still can't process carbs because it'll create some problems, you could flex with a, a, a day where it's high protein, high caloric, right? So just to get mTOR, just to change things up. So there's creative ways to do that. And we kind of teach this to the students in my Keto Camp Academy. It would be a high protein, high calorie day versus like a higher carb day. Great. Oh, yeah. um, and then there's, and there's, you know, there are some type of two diabetics that do want to try out the carbs eventually. And we have them like test it out very slowly. We have them go for walks after their meals, maybe do some berberine on those flex days. So there's kind of creative ways to do it. But um, to your point, everybody's so unique and individual. You want to make sure you customize it to, to your unique needs. Yeah, that's fantastic. This has been a lot of really good practical information. This episode is going to be about stories, though. We're going to really deep dive into a lot of people's stories. And I wondered if you could kick this off with any story that you would like to share about the ketogenic diet. It could be your own. It could be somebody you work with, something that happened recently, something really impactful. What's a story that you would like to share about the impact of the ketogenic diet? Yeah, I mean, keto is so such a great tool and it's so popular right now because it works. Uh, and the American Diabetes Association hates keto. The American Heart Association hates keto. Big Pharma hates keto. There's a, the keto, there's a big backlash against it. So what I love is checking into the keto my, my Keto Camp Academy private Facebook group where I see members interacting on there. Uh, but what I love to see, and this happens almost on a weekly, sometimes daily basis, like a member posting a victory. Like I had no idea starting this keto lifestyle was going to help with growing my hair back. I had no idea it was going to help with my rosacea, my gut, my SIBO. I mean, uh, I worked with my doctor to get off of insulin. That's actually Shannon, who I wrote about in my book, Keto Flex. She's a member. She actually got off insulin. Another one, another story, um, a woman named Zippor, who's in my academy, she before she discovered keto, before she enrolled into my academy, she didn't have her period for over a year. She had PCOS. She was uh, 100 pounds overweight. And then she came across some of my videos. She started to learn that, hey, we don't lose weight to get healthy. We get healthy to lose weight. And it's really a matter of finding ways to lower cellular inflammation. And this is what we teach in the academy. So she enrolled into the academy. And within a few months, she got her period back actually within two months. Her period came back, PCOS reversed. And then after a year, she was down almost 90 pounds, right? 
This is exactly what happens when you do the work. But here's the thing. You got to do the work. You, you could have the best intentions in the world, but it's really the action takers that change the world and get the results they want. So right. those are a few stories that came to mind. And it's, it's always so inspiring seeing that. Man, I absolutely love that. I'm thinking about all these individuals who would really only you know hear about keto because they probably failed on some other diet. They probably got really poor diet advice. And you think these people trying all these different diets are feeling terrible about themselves psychologically. You feel like, why why can't I lose weight? Why, why do I keep failing my workout plan? Why do I keep failing? this diet? Why am I losing willpower? And and the flip of, of when you can teach somebody how to be really effective with their time is just so wonderful to see. So I'm really glad that you shared those stories. Benazadi, where can people go to find you and connect with you in your work? Yeah. And, and I mean, another thing that came to mind, and I'm going to answer a question is I got a comment on my TikTok channel. I don't know if you saw it the other day, the other morning, I was just looking at my TikTok comments and um, I'll read to you exactly what it said, because I think it was pretty cool. Because you don't have to, look, I have my academy, everybody has their programs, they do coaching and we charge for it because rightfully so. However, I mean, there's so much free, amazing content out there. I have 900 plus YouTube videos, I mean, 4,000 plus Instagram videos. Casey has a whole bunch of podcast episodes. Like you could get this information applied and make a difference. And the That's reason right. I say that is because here's, here's the comment. Hey, bro. And this is somebody I never even knew about before. This is the first time he's ever commented or messaged me. He said, Hey, bro. You changed my life. Diabetic for 22 years, saw your TikTok videos, started intermittent fasting, eating fat, fiber, and protein at 100% of my meals, um, lost 15 kilograms. I'm off of all of my medications. <laughs> like, how amazing is that? Incredible. Dude? Like, incredible. incredible. So, um, you can do it. I hope that inspires your audience. And you can learn more about me over at benazadi.com, uh, B E N A Z A D I.com. It has my podcast, my book links, my programs, and everything that you need to learn about me is on there. And I'd love to connect with you. There's a contact form if you want to email me too. That's fantastic. We will link that. And thank you very much, Benazadi, for this exclusive content. Thanks, Casey. Appreciate the work you do. Always a fun chatting with you, brother. Yeah, always a great time. We really appreciate that exclusive content from Ben Azadi, and I thought those tips were absolutely wonderful. So if you're just starting on a diet, make sure you listen to Ben about that and make sure that you transition in a really easy way, make it easy on yourself. The first story that we're going to hear from today is Dan Cadmus. We uh, interviewed him on Balanced Body Radio in episode 163. He has a very powerful story. He wrote a really popular article called 180 Pounds Ago, which means he lost 180 pounds, has been able to successfully keep it off through things like low-carbohydrate diets and intermittent fasting. So let's hear his story. I think it's very relatable. I've, I've struggled with my weight for honestly, as long as I can remember since, since a child, um, grew up in a, you know, an Italian family. You kind of know how that goes. It's all about it. Like everything revolves around the meal around eating. Um, there's a lot of comfort in that, a lot of, um, emotional value in, in eating, and so I developed this tendency to um, use food as a, a coping mechanism and use food, um, you know, eat emotionally. So I, I've definitely suffered from um, what I would say is, is a food addiction, sugar addiction for as long as I can remember. I just never understood what it was. So I was so heavily involved in sports as a kid. Um, I, baseball was my thing. I was on, you know, multiple teams traveling, that sort of thing. And it was my entire identity. And with that emotional eating and, and, um, the using food and substances as a coping mechanism 
like it had a lot to do with me losing and gaining identities throughout my life and, and like falling back on that, that type of a situation. So, um, you know, growing up, baseball was my entire life. Um, and so, you know, I, I always had a problem with my weight, but I was so active. I was playing baseball pretty much year round. Um, so it kept it kind of at bay, uh, so to speak. And there, like, I remember even, even, you know, although I was so active, I was always, you know, the, the big heavy kid on the team. I was a power hitter, a pitcher. I would play first, I would play third. And everything I did had the, um, you know, the ending of like for a big guy. So I ah, pre- moved pretty good for a big guy, whatever for a big guy. You know what I mean? So that's, that's been my life, my, my entire, uh, my entire childhood. Played all those positions. So, that's crazy. Yeah. So I mainly pitched um, and then like would come out and go into third base. And then as I started to pitch more and more and on multiple teams, the idea was like, save the arm, move over to first. Mm. Um, so, but, um, so as, as I went into high school and, and had aspirations to play in college, um, eventually all that pitching kind of caught up to me. I injured my elbow and pretty much my pitching career was over. And so any hopes of playing in college, um, were kind of over. Cause at that point, pitching was my, you know, was my thing. It wasn't as much, you know, playing first or third or even like, um, hitting it it was mainly, if I was going to play in in college, it was going to be to pitch. Um, so I actually lost the last, uh, 10 degrees of extension on my elbow permanently just from the continuous use over and over and over that, that, you know, like pounding of, of that joint. So, you know, when that ended and I was a kid in 11th grade, uh, unequipped to really deal with, with, my first experience of, of losing an identity. Like I, I put all of my eggs in that basket. If you asked me from when I was seven years old, what I would have done, I would have told you baseball player. So, um, that, you know, that was all of a sudden done. And that's, that's, you know, 11th, 12th grade was when I first started, um, experiencing, you know, mental health issues and anxiety and depression and, and everything I've, I've struggled with, with those things. And again, using food as a coping mechanism, um, overeating rapidly gaining weight. And it kind of all spiraled into my twenties where things just got out of control. And so, although I struggled with weight in my teens and, and as a child, it was never, it never crossed the line into like obesity and being extremely unhealthy and and that type of a scenario. So, um, you know, I I went into my twenties continuing to eat worse and worse, which once again, um, knowing what I know now, I think really contributed to the mental health struggles at the time as well. Um, you know, it's, it's all so closely connected as I'm sure you know. Um, so I, I kind of took on this persona of like the party animal kind of guy. Uh, I gave up on pretty much what was my identity at the time and, and embraced that. And with that came the music and this, I almost call it a like cartoon character persona of myself that I thought I had to lean into to be entertaining and to be what I thought everyone else wanted me to be. So I became that guy at parties who people would, I'm not even exaggerating, gather around to watch me chug a bottle of Jack Daniels because, Oof. you know, it was this cool thing that I could sit there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it was this cool thing that I could sit there and, and take down, you know, a quarter of a bottle of Jack in one sitting and, and, you know, we would go out to like wherever and I would, you know, take down X amount of burritos because it was funny and blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? That kind of a, like almost the, um, the sad clown type of analogy, you know what I mean? So 
I was this uh, cartoon character type of persona of myself. I started with music. Um, and it, it's funny because I consider myself pretty lucky. I never had, you know, every, everyone talks about times getting booed off stage, times, you know, where this doesn't happen, that didn't happen. It, it was literally just an upward trajectory for, for my music career, the, as brief as it was. I hadn't experienced a single really negative experience. Every show I did got bigger. Every opportunity got bigger. Like I said earlier, I started meeting people I, I had only dreamed of meeting before. And, you know, I was trying to fake it until I made it. And I was just not the type of person or, or in, in, in every single way imaginable, I just could not handle the pressure. And so I eventually folded and, because of the overwhelming anxiety, I stopped being able to write. I stopped being able to function. I, I mean, like I was always a wreck before shows, but it got even worse progressively. So, uh, you know, that just led me up to the point where I stopped. Um, wow. and that's about, you know, when I stopped, it was about 25, 26. Um, I, you know, to continue on the whole theme of this, just had a tendency to run from my problems, use, use substances to avoid everything, you know, sweep under the rug instead of dealing what was in front of me. So I moved away. I had some friends that um, moved out to Cincinnati after college. Um, they were living out there, like one of my best friends and his wife. They invited me into their home to come live with them. I, to this day, owe them uh, so much because none of this would have been possible without that. Um, but, you know, I thought I was going to be this was going to change everything. Once again, I was, I couldn't take the shame of being a failure, what I thought was a failure in my hometown. Um, and so I moved to Cincinnati to, to kind of get away from it all. And what I discovered there was <laughs> I was just the same person with the same problems in a new place with less support. You know, I had great support with my two friends there, but that's not, you know, no family, no nothing, um, was depleting my savings. Um, just, a bunch of car issues, didn't have a job yet. So, you know, just an extreme uh, low point. And that that extreme low point is is what uh, kind of turned everything around because like my anxiety had reached such a terrible, terrible point um, where I couldn't take it anymore. And that led me to discover meditation. I was someone originally who was such a skeptic of anything, health and wellness, anything, you know, I viewed it as like, meditation in the same boat is like psychic readings or something, you know what I mean? So I was, uh, I was skeptical of everything. And so that's kind of just to show you how desperate I was at the time that that was, I finally reached a point where I was so desperate that I just was willing to try anything, tried meditation. And it, it just started the snowball that, that has been my life ever since. Um, got a job at FedEx, you know, getting some physical activity in shortly after that. I finally had something to like, you know, quiet the voices, so to speak, in my head and and to kind of help me deal with things on a more rational level, something that wasn't substances, you know, food or or alcohol or, or marijuana. So, um, you know, that continued. I started getting some physical activity from work, felt a little better. Meditation worked. I decided to try to start eating a little better. And it all snowballed uh, to me discovering low carb to things, you know, uh, continuing from there and led all the way up until where I am now. Um, you know, I continued with FedEx and continued to lose weight and, and just kind of learning as I went the ups and downs and it's, uh, it's all led me here. When did diet nutrition and especially like low carb come into your field of consciousness? Yeah. Um, it, it, it wasn't. So I think for the first, 
I want to say year or so. Um, the, it was the physical activity of my job kind of guiding me through because it, it, it ramped up. So I, you know, I started just throwing boxes in a warehouse and then they gave me a route. And so, you know, you're, you're kind of, I was running around downtown Cincinnati all day. And, and so that continues to kind of carry me through. And I had kind of the, uh, the mentality of I would eat well all week and then the weekends I would kind of do what I want. And then I started eating better on the weekends. And, and what I thought was better at the time was the traditional, you know, whole grains, uh, heart healthy cereals for breakfast type of deal. Um, which giving like my addiction and everything I know now is just not suitable for me, um, long-term. So I feel pretty lucky that I discovered low carb because I mean, my, my entire, my entire life, not even just my twenties, I was just in this forever state of trying to lose weight and I would forever, um, you know, lose the, the typical thing you hear of anyone experiencing like the standard American diet, which is lose 30 pounds, gain it back. And then some lose 40 pounds, gain it back. And then some, and that was this cycle that I was forever caught in. So I white knuckled it essentially with the same, um, you know, the same way of eating that had gotten me those results before for the first year. And I think because I was so physically active, more physically active than I had been since baseball, it kind of like evened it out. And even when I kind of fell off, it wasn't as bad. Um, but I discovered low carb through my, you know, the friends I moved in with, uh, my best friend's wife, uh, tried it for a couple months and had great results with it suggested it to me and I'm kind of an all or nothing person. So, uh, hence the, the food addiction. So when I dive into something like that, I, I go in, you know, full force. So I started researching, started looking stuff on up online, seeing, you know, realized that it had a lot of legitimacy to it. So I gave it a try. You know, I didn't really know what I was doing as much in the beginning. Um, I probably did it fairly dirty in the beginning as I'm sure a lot of people do, um, you know, more, more, processed foods. And, and just as long as you keep, you know, that carb threshold under 30, you kind of are good to go. And again, saw even more results. And, and that's kind of been my whole progression with my entire journey for the last five years, just continuing to iterate on what I have and try new things and use myself as, as an experiment. You know, I, I don't think we've ever talked about this on the show. Now would be probably a really good time. Let's talk about dirty versus quote unquote, like Clinton keto, like the right. way most people who, you know, maybe just see it on like a magazine or they heard somebody talking about it. The way most people think about keto is, is actually pretty different than where I see a lot of people end up. So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what's the difference between dirty keto and more clean keto and like how your diet progressed? You mentioned like processed foods and things like that. I would love to deep dive into that. For sure. Um, well, I think anyone who is, um, moving from the standard American diet to, you know, full of processed foods, stuff from boxes, you know what I mean? Um, pop tarts, that sort of thing. Any, anyone who is moving from that to a ketogenic diet needs some sort of filler to fill the gap from, uh, what the way they were eating to what I think is, is where everyone should aim to be, which is just real whole foods, whether it's, you know, mostly, uh, plant and animal foods is my opinion of, of the kind of like optimal way to eat. And I think the best way to get there is to use some of those, you know, processed foods, keto treats, quest bars, um, you know, you name it, rebel ice cream. Again, I, I call that dirty keto because at that point you're dealing with, um, 
all kinds of like, you know, tapioca starch and uh, just like a bunch of, you know, uh, sugar alcohols and, and things that, you know, are not real whole foods and they are great in between, in my opinion, and they are great every once in a while um, as a treat instead of going for the real thing. You know, if I want ice cream and I get a, you know, a carton of Rebel, that does me a lot better than going to the real thing and potentially unraveling with the kind of addiction type of scenario that I have. Um, but I would, I would classify dirty keto as, as processed foods, the, the stuff, um, you know, the, the processed Slim Jim type meat sticks, um, just the, the processed foods, you know, with, with all the sugar alcohols and the sweeteners. And again, I, I have nothing against, you know, monk fruit or, or stevia or any of the sweeteners. Um, but when they are a regular part of your diet, it poses the same type of problem for someone who, um, tastes that sweet thing and it tends to unravel them the way it does for me. Yeah, that is perfect. So well explained. And I love that you use the word bridge. Like, look, if you're transitioning from standard American, anything is better than the bullshit you're going to be eating on a standard American diet. Like, do the <laughs> keto cupcakes, go for it. It's funny. I remember when I was first like really getting into low carb and I gave somebody a meal plan and she wasn't very good at cooking. And, um, she, she sat down in the aisle of the grocery store because she couldn't find arrowroot powder, <laughs> which to this day, I don't even know what that is. So I really shouldn't have yeah. given her that meal plan. Um, so, so what does your diet look like today? Like what are some of the things that you do include and you have kept in your diet? Yeah. So, uh, I've, you know, it's, it's been just a constant evolution. I eventually kind of landed on priority, you know, with, with research and with more education and with reading and, and, you know, you, you land on real whole foods as whenever possible. Um, and, and now I've even kind of transitioned to more of a, uh, like carnivore ish, uh, animal based diet, nutrient density, prioritizing protein. And so as I started to get into that world, um, I fell into the, you know, Ted Naiman school of, of nutrition, which I, in my opinion, like if I were to recommend anyone who wants to, you know, start trying to lose weight or get healthier, I would recommend the PE diet to, to really anyone because, um, to me, I think he has such a good, um, just a good overview of, of what is required to lose weight of, of just the basics. And he has so many good diagrams and digestible co uh, content within that book that he, it's easy for me to say, show a client and them to understand how um, different mechanisms work within their body. And, and when you understand, it makes you more likely to like adhere to whatever plan that you're, you're working on. So at this point, I'm, I'm mostly animal-based. I would say um, a lot of, a lot of beef, uh, ground beef, eggs. Um, I take organ supplements cause I've tried so hard. I cannot do liver. I just can't do it. So I take, <laughs> uh, <too>. <laughs> I take organ supplements, um, a lot of ribeyes. Uh, so I, I, I prioritize protein first and foremost. Um, and then I, you know, as I want them, I add other things in such as, you know, like, uh, peppers, leafy greens. And those to me are more because I, um, I want them and, and I enjoy eating them. Not as much me thinking that I have to get a kale and spinach threshold in my system to get, you know, a certain amount of, of nutrients. I, I am getting like, uh, hitting all of my nutritional gaps from 
the meat and organs that I'm eating. And then the vegetables to me are more of an enjoyment type of thing. And again, um, Ted Naiman doesn't necessarily, uh, like fear carbs or, or demonize carbs. It's more kind of an energy balance situation. And I, I talk to people, especially friends of mine who, who ask me my opinion on things like, this is my version of kind of the PE diet for myself. This is what I've landed on factoring in my addiction, my tendency to really overeat. Like this is what works for me. It's a carnivore version of the PE diet. If someone else doesn't have that, that situation, for instance, my brother, my entire life was able to eat a bite of a cookie and put it back. That is in no way, shape or form me. So, uh, you know, if he deals well with that, he doesn't suffer from the addiction. He handles carbs. Well, you know, I don't see a reason for he's, he's been a healthy weight his whole life. If he's trying to eat a little better, I would prioritize protein and real whole foods for him. I wouldn't say carbs are evil. If someone has the addiction thing that I do, I would suggest maybe cutting the carbs out and trying to, you know, go more of a low carb route. Uh, again, still, I, I think protein prioritization and and real whole foods is is the way to be. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, after doing this for a lot of time, I feel like your brother is actually in the minority, not in the majority. I think most people think <laughs> they can moderate. I always thought that about myself. I can't moderate. There's no way. I ate an entire pie right. a few weekends ago. Like, <laughs> awful, terrible. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I know it very well. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you do such a great job, um, posting pictures of your food. Um, I, I, dude, I can count on one hand, like positive influences on Twitter these days. And you're definitely one of them, uh, sharing Thank your you. message and sharing, um, you know, the, the food that you cook. I'm wondering if, if the food that you're cooking now is more elaborate than it has been in the past, or if it's more simple now. Definitely more simple. Um, I, it's funny because I, I don't think everyone is like me where I'm almost I'm almost like a dog. I can eat the same thing over and over and over and I don't really get tired of it. Um, so, you know, when I first started with keto, I would make these elaborate omelets with spinach and pepperoni and salami and cheese and whatever. And, and now it's literally for the most part, if I'm eating how I want, uh, I will after I work out, I will have ground beef and eggs. And for like my second meal, I'll usually have a ribeye and some shrimp or some salmon or whatever. It's, it's pretty standard. Just toss some meat on the grill, call it a day. Um, so that, yeah, it's definitely gotten less elaborate. Next, we're going to be hearing from Aranda Wickramasinghe. I really hope I am getting his last name right. I had to work really hard to learn how to pronounce it. He is such a good dude. He's got the best voice. He's from Sri Lanka. He lives in London now. He was great to talk to. And I think I took a lot from this story that this how broken the system is. You can tell he's trying to get help and trying to deal with his his recent diagnosis of, of pre-type 2 diabetes, and he just doesn't get very many answers. So let's go over to him and hear his story let's go back to the kind of health journey. Like you are moving all the time. You are taking the standard advice and moving all the time. And you, you mentioned weight loss specifically. So were you considered overweight? Were you obese at all? Or like, where where did you fall on that scale? So I'd say I was overweight. Uh, So I had periods when I was overweight and then I'd kind of do calorie restriction, uh, usually with food that I hated or uh, actually things that weren't technically food, they were kind of meal replacement shakes. Um, So kind of, you know, severe calorie restriction for short periods of time, 
uh, really kind of fighting through that hunger, uh, successfully losing weight. But then I got to the point every time where the hunger just won. Uh, you know, I couldn't eat uh, salad and kind of dry chicken breast all the time, you know. Uh, so, yeah. Wow. So how surprising was that to you? Because that is such pervasive and standard advice that you just need to exercise more and eat less. Why, were you confused that it wasn't working? I was really confused because um, all around me, especially in the running club I was a member of, um, which was at the time kind of uh, Wimbledon Windmilers, you know, place in kind of South uh, West London, um, that all around me, I could see people who were fit and slim and healthy and happy, who just made it look easy. They didn't. They seemed to be eating the similar sorts of food that I was eating. So I was kind of thinking, what's what's wrong with me? Am I am I really greedy? Uh, am I kind of morally kind of deficient in some way, uh, or kind of what's wrong with me? Basically, so that, I had those kind of thoughts. Um, and whenever there was some breakthrough kind of, uh, advertised like, I don't know, bariatric surgery or kind of, uh, leptin was a big thing once when that was uh, kind of discovered le leptin. Uh, and whenever something like that came out, um, I kind of briefly got interested, but uh, fortunately I didn't really give those any serious thought. Yeah. Good. Wow. No, it's, it's so interesting. Like so many people that I work with. They like on, on your initial consultation, they think that they're broken. They think there's something mm -hmm. wrong with them. They're, they think they're deficient yeah. and they can't figure yeah. out why. And it's like, well, all of, all of us are feeling the same way. There, there must be something else going on because we can't all be broken in a certain way. So mm -hmm. yeah, I, I wonder if you notice that with the people you kind of work with now. Absolutely. Sort of, there's so much blame associated with type two diabetes and pre-diabetes and obesity. Just people think, "Oh, I've done something wrong." Uh, you know, they, there's so much guilt and kind of blame and self-recrimination, and it's, it's it's really sad to see because really um, they've done nothing wrong. It's the standard advice and the food environment that's wrong. Yeah, that's right. So let's go back to your diagnosis. So this was 2019. Um, you did anything, was anything like causing an issue at the time or was this like completely blindsiding you? So that's an interesting question. So somebody very close to me in the family got diagnosed pre-diabetic a couple of months before that. Uh, so I'd already kind of had in the back of my mind that okay so i'm in one of my kind of heavier cycles uh so i already had, had it in the back of my mind that you know i could be pre-diabetic as well and i did know a little bit about, about type 2 diabetes already because i knew that it's a very serious condition you know it increases your risk of cancer increases your risk of um you know retinopathy and you could go blind uh, you know, you could lose uh, feeling in your feet and, you know, you could injure your feet and then uh, you could get these persistent sores that don't heal and you could end up getting gangrene and having amputations. Uh, you know, you could get kidney failure. So my understanding of diabetes was that it effectively um, things can go wrong with every single part of your body, including your brain, because Alzheimer's risk is much, much higher in type 2 diabetic. So 
I was aware that somebody very close to me uh, was diagnosed pre-diabetic and I had that in the back of my mind. So when I was diagnosed, I wouldn't say I was surprised, but it still was a body blow. Mm. Were you terrified? Well, yes, partly because the nurse sat me down and said, you're pre-diabetic and you're this. Um, here's a sheet of paper, um, lose some weight <laughs> and keep it off. Uh, so uh, off you go. So that was the level of support I got got from sort of the GP practice um, because there wasn't any specific advice. But, you know, I knew already that I, I'd been trying to maintain weight my entire life and failing. Mm. So I was really stuck in terms of, well, what do I do? Because I know I can lose weight in the short term, but I've never been able to keep the weight off. So what do I do? So um, so I kind of, the first thing I did was go back to what I knew already, which was to uh, do calorie restriction. But I did something by accident um, that was really useful because I thought, okay, so if I'm going to be eating very little food, I want to at least go to bed uh, on a full belly. Um, so I just didn't eat um, any breakfast or lunch, and I started just eating dinner, uh, just so I was so kind of paranoid and afraid I wouldn't be able to sleep. Uh, and it turns out that's something called time-restricted eating, <laughs> um, which is quite useful. So kind of quite early on, I discovered people like Dr. Jason Fong, uh, Megan Ramos of, you know, kind of, uh, you know, uh, the um, fasting method. And then relatively early on also, um, I heard a podcast with uh, Dr. David Unwin and also Dr. Jen Unwin, his wife. Uh, so Dr. David Unwin, he's a primary care physician or a GP in, in the UK. And his uh, wife, Jen Unwin, is a clinical psychologist. And Something that really resonated with me um, was that it's just their message of hope saying that, you know, all you need to do is these small changes, uh, you know, there's hundreds of people, if not thousands of people that find these changes sustainable and everything will just get better. You'll lose weight. Um, your hunger is going to go away. Uh, you'll be able to reverse your pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes and, um, you know, you'll feel better than you ever felt before and all of these things. So, and to be honest, it, it all sounded too good to be true. Uh, so when you're, at, when you're at the beginning, there's, there's so much conflicting information, uh, you know, um, but I knew from experience that the calorie cutting didn't really work for me. So I thought, what have I got to lose? And, you know, they, they sound reasonable. And, you know, I could have uh, read the obesity code by Dr. Jason Fong, uh, you know, looked into some of the scientific references uh, in that book as well. But the main thing for me was uh, let's take the plunge and what have I got to lose? And it was astonishing, absolutely astonishing what happened because, I dropped all of my excess weight within 10 weeks. Wow. And yeah. And, and, you know, for me, it wasn't, it was only about 
for me, it's a lot of weight. For a lot of people, it won't be a lot of weight. But I lost about 44 pounds of weight in about 10 weeks. Wow, that's amazing. We will definitely link to the pictures, which is just an amazing tweet that you did to show your your progress. How 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 frequently were those pictures taken and when did you decide that you wanted to document this journey? So I kind of wanted to keep myself accountable. So my wife um sort of helped me out and once a week, uh so I'd go downstairs and you know, stand in a particular place and she'd uh, take a photo, uh, you know, one from the front, one from the side, uh, because um, I just wanted to see, actually see the progress. And um, initially I wasn't really expecting anything. Certainly wasn't expecting the kind of, the kind of progress I actually made. Wow. That's so cool. So you you stumbled accidentally upon <laughs> OMAD, intermittent fasting, time-restricted eating, whatever you want to call it. Um, uh-huh. And then you learned afterwards. That's that's really so cool. I'm curious to, to know how did your the actual foods that you chose change over time? Um, did, you, did you eat different things or did you simply not eat for a better part of the day? So I did eat different things, but I ate the typical kind of diet mentality type of food, which I used to eat uh, when I was in one of my weight loss phases. So typically things like, um, you know, tuna uh, with some kind of steamed vegetables, uh, green vegetables, um, sort of chicken breast without the skin, of course, uh, to cut down on the fat, Um, uh, then kind of boiled eggs. Um, so really kind of joyless food, really. Um, and I didn't enjoy it, but um, it was working uh, as it always did in the past. It was working because I was cutting cutting the calories, but I really didn't enjoy the food initially. So it was a real kind of liberation to read the things that um, Dr. Jason Fong and Megan Ramos were kind of uh, sort of talking about or writing about and, and to listen to um, Dr. Dave Dunman and Jen Dunman, because they were saying all these amazing foods are on on the table again. Mm. So what were some of those foods? What were some of the foods initially that you decided to change and bring into the diet that you really loved? Uh, steak. Wow. <laughs> Good answer. You know, steak, <laughs> steak, bacon, double cream, butter, um, you know, uh, cheese, uh, nuts. Uh, I mean, all these kind of delicious foods because... Uh, I mean, you know, if somebody said to me, all you're going to have uh, for the rest of your life is steak, eggs, and some green veg, uh, I'd be very happy, you know, uh, because it's delicious food. Yeah, absolutely. It's. I was just talking to somebody on a coaching call just now, like I have maybe three or four different foods that I ever eat and I don't, I don't mm-hmm. want anything different. It looks so restrictive from the outside. Like, Oh, you're going to get an eating yeah. disorder. You're not eating very many yeah. foods. You need to eat more. And it's like, I, I don't want to eat any more than these three things that are absolutely delicious and, and amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. How did the people around you start to respond and did they also want to kind of jump on board? That's a really interesting question. So um, I'd say a lot of people were skeptical uh, because um, people close to me, they, they'd seen me kind of really take the bull by the horns in the past in terms of, okay, this is what I'm doing now to lose weight. This is what I'm doing doing now to lose weight. 
so they'd all, all seen me losing a substantial amount of weight before. So it wasn't really anything new. Uh, as far as they were concerned, it was just the latest fad thing. Uh, and, you know, all likelihood, they thought I'd, I'd pile the weight on again. So I think it's really taken people quite a bit of time to get used to the idea that this is not a fad. This is my life now. Mm, gotcha. And it's always interesting, too, to hear the story. Um you know, most people they're they're seeking a goal of weight loss, fat loss, something along those lines. But they also notice surprising other things along the way. Did you experience any other improvements on things that you weren't expecting? Absolutely. Yeah. It, it, the main thing is hunger. The main thing is hunger and also mental clarity. Because it was really, really strange to me that my hunger which used to be, uh, I think I think Eve Mayer describes it as the hunger bully. It used to be kind of like a, like somebody shouting, you know, somebody kind of bullying me and saying, you, you have to eat, you must eat. So I used to get that kind of uh, almost shaking with hunger kind of feeling. Um, whereas when I switched to low carb and intermittent fasting, once my body had gone through some adaptation, um, I was finding that I, I had the regular kind of, uh, ghrelin cycle during the day but when the hunger came uh, I, I could just kind of carry on I could still focus uh, and the mental clarity thing that, that's pretty awesome because um, I did some extended fasts so uh, in the first 10 to 12 weeks I did quite a few extended fasts and I just felt so much at peace yeah, I mean when you're in deep ketosis, it, I'm not. It's a difficult feeling to describe because it, it almost seems impossible. Because, uh, for example, I, you know, three days into a fast, uh, I'd be feeling full of energy and I could think clearly. I could do my job. Uh, I could go for a walk and do all of the things I normally did, and I could do them better. Wow. I want to um, I want to unpack both of those things. You were recently featured on the Big Middle podcast with one of my really good friends, Susan Flory. I love her and her, I love her work. For the listener, go check out her podcast, The Big Middle. They tackle um, some great issues and have really great guests, including yourself. You gave one of the best analogies I've ever heard about hunger changing. Um, you know how the hunger changed for you and how you looked at it. Can you share that analogy that you shared with her? Yeah, yeah, and oh, uh, big thank you to uh, thank you to her by the way. So, I mean, Susan, she's amazing, and big thank you to her. And so, the analogy I used was: so now, hung, hunger is sort of it used to be like a bully, but now it's like a really good friend who comes and taps me on the shoulder and says, um, "Are you free? You know, are you free to have lunch? Uh, if you're busy, I can we can kind of reschedule, come back later." And that's what hunger is like for me now, because um, if I'm busy, uh, I can say to my hunger, no, thank you. And I'll carry on. I've got a busy work day. I've got deadlines. So I just I'm, I just, I'm just going to work through lunch. I'm not going to have lunch. And then, uh, you know, some, sometimes I do extended fasts. And then sort of when I am ready, when I choose to, I can break my fast uh, and sort of my hunger and I, uh, we've made peace with, you, with each other. It's like, it's like having a really good kind of catch up with a good friend. 
Yeah, I just, I absolutely love that analogy. That's probably the best way I've ever heard it put. Um, and then, and then the mental clarity. I, again, I don't think people understand what it's like not to feel hungry. And I don't think mm-hmm. people understand what it's like to, to have mental clarity, to not get foggy, to not have their face hit their desk at 3 PM. What, what kinds mm-hmm. of things, do, what kinds of practical things did you like, I don't know, I guess appreciate more once you had that mental clarity. Um, so what, well, to my shame, uh, I've recognized that my behavior before I changed lifestyle, um, there was almost kind of like a Jekyll and Hyde kind of thing going on because um, sort of, for example, coming back from work, uh, I'd be so hungry getting through the door that I was all really agitated before we had dinner. So my wife um, saw a different person before the meal to after the meal, if that makes sense. Mm, that makes perfect so, sense. Yeah. So, so I kind of, I was this kind of really agitated, hangry kind of person before a meal because uh, because I was eating all the kind of you know the you know ultra processed foods and refined carbohydrates. I was on the kind of the blood sugar roller coaster, and I recognised now that I must have had something uh, like a mild form of reactive hypoglycemia, where my blood sugar would have shot up because of all of the refined carbohydrates I was eating. Then my insulin overcorrects. And the blood sugar drops a little bit below to what my brain was comfortable with. And then, uh, you know, alarm bells start to go off. And then the hunger bully comes out and says, you have to eat. Uh, It doesn't matter what, you just have to eat right now (laughs) or something bad's going to happen. So I recognize now that hunger and what I was eating really was um, affecting my mood uh, and kind of, uh, and and actually affecting how I interacted with people I care about uh, and also affecting how I interact with people in my professional life because the the mental focus would come in and out. So I had these short periods close to meals when I could think clearly and, and focus on my work and then uh, sort of I'd have that, had that kind of feeling of I have to eat something. Mm. I just think if you ask somebody why they're trying to improve their life, if you ask them why enough times, eventually they'll get to something like, I want to be there for my wife. I want to live for my grandkids. I want to have energy to play with my kids. What does it mean? What does it mean to you to know that you are creating more meaningful interactions with the people that you love and, and you're, you're creating more time. There's more time for you to be able to spend with them. And it's, it's, it's not even the quantity of time. It's a quality. It's a much higher quality of time that you get with them. What does that mean to you? Well, it gets, for me, I get to enjoy being a dad a hundred percent as opposed to, um, sort of being distracted and thinking about my next meal. I can be with my boy. Uh, and I can be with him 100% and be present uh, and be in the moment. And, and, and in the same way, um, I get so, so much more enjoyment of being a husband, uh, you know, more enjoyment out of being a brother or a friend because I'm focusing on the person in front of me mm. as opposed to uh, thinking about my next meal. Wow. I just think that's so... 
I think that's so powerful. I think it's such an amazing thing to experience and to be able to show up and be present with those people that you love every single day. You talk a lot about um, having a specific pace, making sure that you're not doing things all at once, but having a, a plan that's a little bit more sustainable. Can you talk about some of the, the steps that you took that, that were able to help you do this in a very sustainable way? Um, yeah, yeah. So actually, I made quite a few mistakes, as I kind of alluded to earlier. So I kind of started out with the calorie restriction uh, and then sort of Looking back, I think I would do certain things differently because I'd say I was kind of panicking or um, really desperate because um, I'd read this study by a professor called Roy Taylor of Newcastle University, and they had this crazy kind of uh, schedule of putting their patients on something like 800 calories a day for 10 to 12 weeks. So like a very low calorie diet. And mm. they found that the patients that did the best or got the best results in terms of remission were patients that lost about 10% of their body weight. So I was absolutely desperate to lose weight and lose weight quickly. So, so when I discovered intermittent fasting and low carb, um, I started eating more when I was eating, but I did kind of run before I could walk with regards to the fasting. So, for example, I think I did my first extended fast within a week of uh, my diagnosis, So, which was way too soon because I, I hadn't really gone through the healthy adaptation, uh, which I anybody I talk to now, um, I, I say to them, focus on having really good quality nutrient-dense meals, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner until your hunger goes away and you start intermittent fasting almost because you don't feel like eating because you're feeling so satiated that you don't feel hungry. Uh, so it, it's kind of I force myself to fast as opposed to being ready for it. Um, so I think a lot of my learning in terms of sustainability came towards the end of that period and, and afterwards in terms of, um, you know, learning that it's sort of, well, learning the food, to cook food that I really enjoyed uh, and learning that it's actually okay not to fast all the time, yeah. you know, because yeah. um, it, it was it was kind of a really weird feeling when, it, when I lost all the weight. It's like, oh, what do I do now? Uh, do I eat one meal a day? Do I eat two meals a day? What do I eat? How often do I fast? All those kinds of questions. So, and it's, it's been a huge learning process. Aranda is just such an inspiring dude. I really love that analogy. I use that all the time when I'm trying to explain to my people what it's like to be able to get past the hunger that most people normally feel on a typical day once they decide to go low carbohydrate and ketogenic. I think most people who have done that have experienced that and it's a really cool feeling to feel like your hunger has gone from a bully to a very nice friend. So we love that. Next, we are gonna go over to Josh Perry, who is a former professional BMX bike rider. Um, he was diagnosed with a brain tumor and eventually use nutrition and ketogenic diets to help him deal with that. So let's hear his story now. 
you started to learn about the relationship between brain health and diet, which I don't think a lot of people really connect those two things. So how did that start to come about and why is nutrition so important for brain health? Yeah, I mean, I think that people don't realize that what they do to, to their bodies, what they consume and how they live their life affects their brain because they can't see their brain. You know, like we break an arm, we can see that it hurts and we get it fixed. The brain perceives pain and actually doesn't have pain itself. It's like a weird thing to try to explain, but we don't see it. So therefore we don't ever really consciously think that what we're doing could be affecting it one way or another. We just typically think when it comes to our brain that, you know, don't hit your brain or don't do drugs because it's going to kill brain cells or this or that, or, you know, study and read to be smarter. But we don't think about the health, resiliency and strength and performance of our brain. For me, that was going through the obvious TBIs, concussions, brain surgery, gamma knife radiation in 2012 for a reoccurrence. Um, but ultimately what it was, was a friend sharing a documentary that just made so much sense and to the science of how simple it is of like your body rejuvenates every one of its cells over time. Some are daily, some take 10 years to fully rejuvenate. But what you feed yourself is what's building the materials for your being. It's like building a house. If you want to build a strong house, you know, you're going to use treated plywood. You're not going to use particle board. You're going to use treated plywood and you're going to put sealant over it and shingles on top of it. You're not going to put just particle board out there or cardboard and expect it to last. That analogy applies to the human body on a more complex level. But I find because people don't see their brains, they don't think about it that way. They don't even think about their bodies that way because that's not what mainstream you know, marketing and media and even education tells us. Um, so for me, it was really going through those wake-up calls and those adversities to open my mind to it. And then it was really open with that documentary. And then after the second diagnosis, which we treat with Gamma Knife, um, which is a form of radio wave therapy, this book called Grain Brain by Dr. David Perlmutter was given to me as a gift at the end of 2013. And the simple point he made in that book, being a, a neurologist who's a son of a neurologist who actually his son is a neurologist now, um, he made the point of blood sugar and how it correlates and directly affects different aspects of our brain health, resiliency, function, performance, longevity, all those things, and how we can track different biomarkers from what we eat. And that was the first time I ever heard about the word ketones, the word ketogenic or keto, the ketogenic diet. Um, and he talked about that and the aspect of brain health and performance. But he also talked about things like fat and cholesterol and salt that are super misunderstood. And it's all context. There's all these studies that show fat makes you sick or this or that. And it's usually, uh, or all of those studies for the most part, that are using whatever type of fat source, whether it's quality or unquality, are all linked with high amounts of carbohydrates. And we know when we have elevated levels of carbohydrates consumed, our blood glucose levels rise, therefore insulin rises, therefore we have more free, uh, free radicals or also known as reactive oxygen species, which all creates more inflammation. Now over time, when that becomes a chronic way or like a lifestyle way of eating and living and your body producing these things, that's where disease starts to take over. And it's a slow onset. And in my case, it happened quick because I guess I was genetically predisposed to brain tumors and growth, really. Um, so when we think about nutrition, it's obvious it's it's often overlooked as more than just fuel. It's 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 more than fuel, it's information. 
every piece of food you eat has a different information piece attached to it that signals your body on a cellular level and a genetic level to do certain things. And we can, um, this is the study of gene expression called epigenetics. We can influence our gene expression, which I think it's been known now, 70, 75% of our genetic makeup can be expressed one way or another. It's not just fixed with diet, with mindset, with lifestyle, with movement. And so it was just, it was that book and how eloquently and simply he put these pieces of the puzzle together that just clicked for me. And so I, I did my best to implement everything he said. And then, you know, I obviously got great results. I felt better. I looked better. I was thinking clearly. I was having little to no digestive issues anymore. Um, and then it was 2017 where a third brain tumor diagnosis uh, was found or, or came about. And my education in this world of metabolic health is the best way to summarize it, like nutrition and health and all that. It's like metabolically, what is it doing? Because that's what's triggering all these other cascade of events the word epigenetics and keto came so profoundly because this third diagnosis, they told me the reason they thought I was having these reoccurrences was a genetic component, like some kink in my DNA that was creating this expression um, genetically. And I remembered, all right, well, Dr. Perlmutter talked about ketones having powerful signaling uh, abilities you know, epigenetically, and we can control um, the degree of inflammation with diet, uh, we can do all sorts of things. And, you know, with eating carbohydrates, we increase our glucose, which increases insulin, which promotes growth. It's called insulin growth factor is one of the, uh, the molecules or whatever it's called. Um, so I put these things together and I was like, man, like, okay, eating carbohydrates promotes insulin, which promotes growth epigenetics. I think it's a genetic you know, thing here, ketones have, you know, powerful, positive epigenetic factors to them. Okay, let's get serious about this. I was, you know, tracking my macros back then, but because I was an athlete, I thought I needed X amount of carbohydrates a day. So I did more research on that, found that that was false under the context of keto adaptation or fat adaptation on a cellular level, which takes weeks to apply. So I was like, all right, we're tracking my macros. Let's just audit some things. Let's just critique some things. Let's, let's decrease the carbohydrate intake Let's start testing my blood for glucose and ketones, see where the changes need to be made. And then let's increase my fat intake a little bit more as I get more and more fat adapted to make up for the fuel, the lack of fuel that would, what's the word? Deficit. So removing carbohydrates for easy fuel, we need to replace that. The way the body works is it takes time to be able to switch to that fuel source. We're like hybrid machines. It just takes some time for essentially for the body to get the instructions to burn fat for fuel. So I started just doing all these things and changing things and educating myself more and got really passionate about the, the ketogenic diet and, you know, started over time supplementing exogenous ketones because we know with research that the brain prefers ketones for fuel so much so that even in the presence of glucose, the, the brain will utilize ketones before carbohydrates or glucose. Right. Same with the heart. They perform more efficiently. They use less oxygen per molecule. They produce less free radicals per molecule. And they're like solar energy compared to gasoline in a fire or sticks and pine needles on a fire. So I just put all these pieces together and I was like, man, there's something to this. I've actually got to hang out a couple of times with Dr. Perlmutter, talk with him and a bunch of other thought leaders in the space, you know, Dr. Dom D'Agostino, yeah, Dave wow. Asprey, Dr. Amen. I've done some work with all of them and Dr. Ryan Lowry. Like I, I have 
essentially I took the same path in BMX with the metabolic health and brain health aspect of, of this world. But ultimately where this story is going is I got that information with the third diagnosis. I recalled all the things I was learning, especially from Dr. Perlmutter's book, Grain Brain. I, I started lowering my carb intake. I upped my fat intake. I started introducing fasting and MCT oil and powder. Um, later on down the road, implemented exogenous ketones. And then for two years, um, scans showed no progression. And I kept doing that and I, you know, was really excited about it. Um, and that's, that's really what led me to becoming passionate even more so about communicating these complex topics and distilling them into be simple, practical things. And I know what I was just sh uh, sharing a minute ago was kind of probably over some people's heads, even though I was trying to do it, uh, explain it simply and quickly, but that's why I do all the things I do is because I want people to understand it's a lot simpler than it sounds. It just may take a conversation or two to, you know, understand the basics, but there's plenty of free resources. And I want to be one of those resources to help people because by me doing what I do and implementing the things I have, which allowed me to share from personal experience, I've helped people, you know, go from three to five seizures a day to a friend of mine who worked with me, started out as a client of mine, now good friends. He just posted about 600 days free of seizure now. Like, and that was to avoid a third brain surgery to remove more brain matter because his, his surgeon thought that's what was causing the seizures. But we know that ketones have powerful anti-seizure effects because that's how it was founded. It was the ketones were found on accident in 1920s or 30s when they were fasting children with epilepsy and they noticed their epilepsy, their seizures were going away, but then they were finding these molecules in the blood. And so the ketogenic diet was founded upon that understanding with adding protein to the mix in different ratios so that way they weren't starving but they were in a fasted state so to speak because when you don't have carbs introduced to the body the glycogen stores which are stored carbs in your liver and muscles deplete and then the body's forced to look at fat for fuel because we're hybrid machines and with that fat metabolism in abundance comes ketones, which can be used for energy. And so it's just, there's so much information about this way of living and eating that I want to be a vessel of sharing that because it's it wasn't easy for me to find. It's not mainstream. It goes against standard of care, which the pharmaceutical companies and big food companies have taken over because it's profitable. And obviously the world we live in is run by politics and money. And it's just it's a whole nother topic about my perspective on the focus should be human beings, health and wellness, not making money for a corporation organization. But ultimately that's, yeah, that's a long winded way of saying that Dr. Perlmutter multiple brain tumor diagnosis and the ketogenic diet uh, really helped me. And then it helped me with my voice and confidence sharing with other people. And by doing so, I've been able to help other people that never thought you know, nutrition could help their psoriasis or their knee pain or their seizures or their mental health struggles. And it just, it all comes back to what we're feeling ourselves nutritionally and mindset wise. Next, we are going to go to somebody that I found on social media who I was so honored to host on the show. His name is David Scott, definitely not a household name. He just does his own great little work and puts out a blog and just really inspires people in his little corner of the globe. He was very humble. I think you'll be able to hear that here in this show, but he's also extremely knowledgeable when it comes to low-carbohydrate diets. He's also going to talk about something we've talked about previously on the show, which is MAF, M-A-F, Maximal Aerobic Function, and, and that is 
from an episode that we did with Dr. Phil Maffetone. So if you have any questions about that, go back and listen to that episode that we did with Phil. It's a really great one. I want to say we interviewed him on episode 96 of Balanced Body Radio, but I, I love David's story. So let's go to David Scott and hear his story now. What are some of the most important things that you've, you know, implemented along the way that has helped you with your understanding of health and fitness? Well, you know, um, like I said, I, I kind of look at myself from a performance standpoint, you know, performance and you can't, it doesn't have to be performance versus longevity. It can be both of those at the same time. And when it comes to performance, I'm, I'm trying to, to stay explosive. I'm trying to keep my aerobic fitness good for recovery on the field, you know, that kind of stuff. I'm also, uh, I'm strength training quite a bit. And uh, of course, my diet has really changed. But what I've learned is, you know, when I was a kid, now I wasn't a sports, uh, I wasn't an athlete in high school or college, but I was a lifter. I love to be in the gym. I love to lift weights. And when I was in college, I would easily do two a day workouts. Um, I was, I've, again, I've always been a, a little guy, but um, I was big and strong for my size. And uh, what I learned, you know, when I joined uh, a rugby team and decided I was going to, I, I thought I was supposed to train like that um, as a strength athlete. And you can't be in the gym five days a week. You can't be on the field three days a week. You can't neglect sleep. You can't eat garbage. You know, I'll tell you, Casey, one of the things that this is like simple when it comes to diet, but, you know, when I first really got rolling on, uh, rugby, I, I knew number one, I, I, I needed to put on weight. I went in weighing about 160, 165. And that was a joke as a player. You know, we, we pride ourselves in rugby for recruiting the fat guys because you, know, <laughs> you can really use the big boys on the field. Um, and I needed to put on some weight. So I was eating pretty much anything in sight. And I was just gulping whatever kind of protein shakes I could get and just trying to get calories in my body. Cause you know, the, the paradigm I come from is the, you kind of the, the old style bodybuilding community of the eighties, you know, and that's what we did then. And, you know, I would have to take, I would have to pop a couple of ibuprofen before I ever stepped on the field uh, because my joints hurt so bad. I was so creaky. I was so, um, you know, just all the time I was, I was fighting injury. And coming to a point where a couple of years later, I think forcing my nutrition to be so, you know, it's funny, you think of it as being healthy for performance, but it's actually terrible for your body. Um, I finally get to a point where my stomach was a disaster, really. It, it was, um, it, I, I guess you would call it IBS for lack of a better term. It was just always a mess. And I finally, I took a couple of days, I, I went on a long fast. And I came back and I, I completely overhauled my diet, dropping um, processed sugar, most pretty much all processed foods. Uh, grain is gone. It's been gone, which is tough. If you're a rugby player, you want to drink a lot of beer. But, you know, I had to put that out of my diet. Um, you know, the pasta is gone, all that kind of stuff. And I went pretty much, uh, I would say, pretty close to a, a keto, ketogenic or, or at least low-carb paleo diet at that point. And it, completely changed the way my body uh, felt and performed. Um, I, I think it's on my blog somewhere. I accidentally, I, I say I accidentally lost 
over 25 pounds in a matter of months. Yeah, that's right. I, I didn't know I had that weight to lose. You know, everybody talked about how small I was. I was down uh, about 148 pounds at that point. Like I didn't know I was carrying that much weight. Wow. Um, and, you know, I have since kind of stabilized at about 155 pounds. And I've, I feel like that's probably my my equilibrium weight at that point. That was my high school weight, um, you know, uh, and um, I feel good at this weight. I feel light. I felt able to perform. So, you know, again, at, some of the things that I've had to change would be my diet. I've had to change how many days I train. I can't recover if I'm in the gym four days a week. I just can't do it. Three days, I'm fine. Um, I can't, um, you know, I sprint one day a week. And that's all I need to sprint. If I'm um, you know, practicing, uh, you know, I get my sprint days on practice days. Um, my sleep, I really take care of my sleep. That's something that's very important to me. And that was tough. As I'm an IT guy. Um, you mentioned that I've got my, my uh, own business. And I've been in IT for you know 30 years. And I've got my own business. It used to be that I'd stay up at all hours of the night and work uh, because I could. And uh, now I just can't do that. Um, I have a, a pretty rigid sleep schedule that I try to keep to um, so that I can recover and so that I, I'm, I'm doing my best. And uh, so, yeah, that's, that's a couple of the big rocks, as I call them, your sleep, diet, and uh, recovery. For me at my age, uh, those are the things that work for me. Mm. Yeah, that's great. That sounds like a very balanced approach between, you know, doing and pushing and striving versus surrendering and allowing yourself to rest and recover. I think that's so important. Um, I, I On that blog post that you made about accidentally losing all that weight, it's pretty amazing. And it's part of the reason why I recommend people do before and after pictures, because those pictures, you can tell a huge, huge difference. And part yeah. of that journey was, um, I mean, you tried a, a fairly more strict kind of carnivore diet at pretty much about the same time that I did um, in 2019. Mm -hmm. I I wanted to try it for like 30 days and liked it so much. I just kind of forgot to go off of it. What was your experience <laughs> with the carnivore diet itself? You know, I, I loved it. And, um, you know, I, my carnivore experience is very much, um, you know, all types of meat. So uh, fish, beef, um, uh, chicken, uh, you name it, pork. I, I'm, I'm in Memphis, Tennessee. So you got to eat a lot of pork down here. I know you just had... Um, uh, oh, what's the barbecue gal you just had on the podcast? Yeah. It was so good. You know, she's, she called out Memphis, you yeah. know, and it's like, you know, um, but I still hold to primarily a meat-based diet. Um, you know, when I get up in the morning, it's basically a piece of meat and a couple of eggs. That's what I have in the morning. Uh, my lunch is centered around some kind of piece of meat and I might throw in an avocado, uh, uh, a couple of slices of cheese, you know, something like that. The hard part about that, you know, at my house, if you only knew Casey, what a cook my wife is, <laughs> um, she is amazing. You know, when you've got as many kids as we do, and then you've got all of their friends and girlfriends and now wives and now their children, we feed a lot of people around here. Wow. And so trying to learn how to cook in such a way where you can accommodate the most number of people and still make it uh, a somewhat healthy <laughs> meal uh, is pretty tough. She does a great job. You know, my wife, I got to say, has she's come along this journey as well, and she has really transformed her health alongside uh, me, but alongside me, but independently of me. You know, she, her body works a very different way than mine does, and she's done a great job there as well. But um, 
back to the, the carnivore-ish, um, I would say that our dinner times, because they involve so many people, it's much more diverse. So we're having a much uh, broader range of vegetables and starches and things like that. And so, you know, I have to kind of pick through that and eat what, what works for me. But she's very uh, sensitive to the way that I, I prefer to eat. And so there's, you know, she'll set aside the meat. She'll set aside the shrimp. She'll set aside the fit, you know, whatever it is, she'll set, set some aside for me uh, and let me do whatever I want to with it. And, um, uh, you know, I still really center my diet around a carnivore-ish diet. Nice. Uh, that's what I call it right now. Yeah. Wow. No, that's great. That's awesome. Um, another thing I've heard you talk about um, on your blog is related to somebody that we've also interviewed on our show, Dr. Phil Maffetone, and using oh, heart yeah. rate training and the Maffetone mm -hmm. method to calculate your heart rate. Can you tell us a little bit about that and some of the benefits you've noticed? You know, um, it's it's funny because I, I uh, you know, I, I unfortunately, I don't have a great heart rate monitor. I just use my, my Fitbit and I use uh, usually Strava along with that. But um, it is so obvious when you really tie yourself to that Maffetone method, which is essentially uh, for people who don't know, um, they just need to go back and listen to the episode. But um, uh, it's you take a, 180 beats per minute, uh, which is different than the traditional, what is it, 220 minus whatever. I, yeah. I can't remember. But that's right. For Maffetone, it's 180 minus your age. And that's kind of a good target aerobic heart rate. And it's weird because you think I am not working hard at all. You know, it's, you're almost walking when you get started. And, but you know, you're watching that for me, I'm watching my, uh, my Fitbit and I'm watching my heart rate and I'm trying to keep it pegged out at around, for me, it's around a hundred and say 25 to 130 beats per minute. And I'll, I've noticed that true to what Phil says, the longer you do that, you become so much more efficient uh, in your your aerobic health to where you're going farther, faster, with the same target heart rate. So you know you're becoming more efficient. And you know, for an athlete, that just means that you're going to be that much better at recovering um, in you know if in your strength training, in your on field, uh, in your uh, your you know if you're a marathon runner, I'm definitely not a long distance runner, um, but you become so much more efficient and it's so easy to track when you're doing that Phil Maffetone method. Mm, that is very well explained. Um, and I definitely second you for the listener. It's such a great way to train and build, like you said, your efficiency, your fat burning capacity. You, you just see your performance just slowly increase at the same rate. Like you were saying, I, it's such a great way to train and a great way to avoid burnout. Um, you know, Casey, yeah, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you know, it's funny. So we going back to what we were talking about earlier, it's been almost two years since we were able to play uh, on the field. And it's been kind of, if, if you read my blog, you know, I do a lot of N equal one experiments. I'm, I'm always changing up my routines. I'm changing my diet. I'm changing what supplements I take. Uh, if any, uh, I change uh, my strength training routines. Uh, but I've had, this has been kind of a lab for me uh, doing Phil's, you know, method, doing some high intensity work as well, which I've, I've just, uh, uh, integrated in, uh, the last year, really, uh, since I couldn't get on the field and do anything, my strength training. Uh, and so it's been kind of a lab to see, okay, was I successful with that stepping back onto the field this summer? 
And I was so incredibly surprised to see just how well I could perform. Uh, you know, you get tired anytime you're doing something uh, as high octane as playing, you know, sevens or touch rugby or whatever. But, you know, I'm not gassed. I feel good. I can run with kids. I run with my own kids. Like I play against my own boys when I'm on the field. So it's like, it's, it's really cool. And, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be as fast as those guys are, but I can keep up and I can hold my own. And so I know like with the Maffetone training and the hit work that I'm doing, I know that it's worked. I, I know for sure that those experiments have come through for me. Um, so it's, it's really been helpful. Next, we are going to hear from Jen Eisenhart, who is a journalist and filmmaker, and she has a great story about how she found a low-carbohydrate diet. She later made a movie about it called Fat Fiction, which I highly recommend. I believe it's still available on Amazon. It's something we talk about on our show all the time. If you want more information about that, you can go check out our original interview with Jen back on episode 17 of Balanced Body Radio. I'm sorry, not 17, 16. Anyway, this was a really cool example of how journalists are also finding this story and how how they are reporting it even though they might not start out with a background in health they have uncovered all the stories behind why we think fat is such a bad idea so i'm thinking of people like gary taubes or nina teichel some of the really big journalists who have blown the lid off of this story and helped introduce people to the idea that saturated fat is not necessarily bad for you so let's go to jen and hear her story so i grew up during the quote-unquote low-fat era um you know, I was I was in junior high school in the 1980s um, and into high school. And so, you know, I had it drilled into my head in, at a very young age that that fat is terrible. Fat will make you fat, um, should be avoided at all costs, uh, especially saturated fat. You know, if you eat any saturated fat, you're going to have a heart attack and die for sure. Um, and so was pushed into, or, you know, all the foods of that era that were so heavily promoted, um, you know, the food industry really just latched onto that notion, um, that, that, uh, fat is bad for us and, and just rolled out all of these low fat foods, uh, that were really just carbs loaded with sugar, uh, but were sold to us as healthy, uh, and, and it was it was just pervasive. It was everywhere. It was in the media. It was uh, in the medical system. I mean, everyone uh, jumped on board with the low fat dogma, and and so I lived through that era, and and then it wasn't until just a couple of years ago, and, and I I never was someone who was really overweight, but you know, I, I struggled with 10 to 15 pounds, probably my, you know, whole life, uh, never really being completely, uh, fit, I guess I should say. Um, but I never could quite get there either, uh, eating a low fat diet. So I was a couple of years ago, I, I knew that I'd always had a problem with sugar and, and sugar just really affected me uh, badly. Like if I like donuts for breakfast are just like the death <laughs> for me, it would just ruin my whole day. Yeah. Uh, or even oatmeal or pancakes. I knew I couldn't have that for breakfast. I mm. realized at least that, um, that would really ruin my day. I'd be better off to just not eat at all, which also was something we were, 
you know, so warned against, you know, breakfast being the most important meal of the day. So it was really, yeah, such conflicting advice with how it made me feel when I ate that way. So um, a couple years ago, I decided to take a a sugar detox course. That's called the Restart Program. And there's a gal here in Boise, where I live, um, that is a great uh, nutritional therapist. She's, She's a really neat gal. And I just signed up to take the course. It's a five-week course. It's an elimination diet and you eliminate all sugar and grains um, in the diet. And the first night of the class, uh, the the first class, she was talking about how we not only need to um, eliminate sugar from our diet, but we need to be eating a lot more fat and especially saturated fat. And I mean, I, I was kind of stunned. Uh, And this is just three and a half years ago, not, wow, not very long ago. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess I hadn't quite been paying attention, but, um, but, you know, I also worked as a news journalist uh, for a good por- portion of my career working for, you know, television station as a special projects producer. And I mean, I can't tell you how many interviews I did with nutritionists and dietitians who just warned of the grave dangers of eating saturated fat. So it wasn't, you know, I I'd interviewed quote unquote experts about this. And so I was really surprised to hear um, this gal say that we should be eating a lot more fat in addition to cutting out sugar and, and reducing carbohydrate intake. So I, I kind of, that just sort of launched my own inquiry because I was like, I don't know if this is right. And uh, so then I reached out and just, you know, found Nina Teichel's book, found Gary Taubes' books, and started doing more research on, on low carb. And, uh, and at the same time, started eating the way this course was, you know, recommending. I thought, well, I'm going to try it and see how I feel. And what I found was I felt the best I'd felt in over a decade. You know, I, it was amazing. I mean, my body really responded well to eliminating the sugar, um, cutting out grains, um, my digestive system improved, just my digestion improved dramatically. Um, I felt better. I had more energy. I lost weight. Um, and, and so that was kind of the start of it for me. Cause I was getting this at the same time, I was finding validation in, in, incredible books like the big fat surprise and Gary Taubes, good calories, bad calories. I was getting validation in my own body at the same time. So that was what just really launched my whole inquiry into the topic. Wow. I'm so glad you mentioned, um, Nina and Gary. Um, I, I found both of their books very early in my journey as well. And I'm sitting next to Nina's book. She's got an interesting story that doesn't sound very different than yours. You guys are journalists. You're not mm-hmm. a nutritionist. You didn't go to school for this. You don't have a degree. You didn't go to medical school. You're, you just ask questions. I think that's very, very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, Gary Taubes even talks about that. He says, you know, it's interesting that the, the, the two main science journalists who have really looked deeply into this topic, himself and Nina Teichel's have both come to the same conclusion <laughs> and that it's just been really bad science, you know, for half a century, just really sloppy science. And, uh, and it was promoted and, and pushed and everyone latched onto it and ran with it. 
even though um, it, it, it really wasn't proven at the time that we adopted a low fat diet. Mm. Well, it's interesting. Gary in your movie says um, we got it wrong and it happens in science and we expect that to happen in science. But why, why was this so different? Like you're, you're probably as good a person as any that can tell the story of what, what went wrong? How did we get so backwards as far as our nutritional guidelines? Well, I think there were a lot of, a lot of factors at play. Um, I don't think it was any one single thing, um, but more of a perfect storm. Uh, you know, um, we had researchers that, that, you know, wanted to defend their research academically. Um, we had a food, food industry that could benefit from, from that recommendation and latched on to that and wanted to run with it. Um, we had a government that wanted to do the right thing, wanted to help the population, uh, but was impatient, didn't want to wait for the science to come in. Um, wanted to just go ahead and make a recommendation. It didn't recognize the pitfalls of doing that. Didn't recognize that they could be doing harm by jumping ahead, um, ahead of the science. So I think it was really a, a perfect storm of, of things that happened, um, unfortunately, for our country. Mm. Wow. And the world that followed suit, you know, followed the United States thinking that we were we were the smart ones, you know, we sure. exported that to the world. Wow. A lot of the early science, um, quote unquote science that was released is, is based on what's called epidemiology, which is where you look at a big group, you kind of try to divide them out based on outcomes. And then you make decisions and say, okay, these people died. What were they doing? And maybe they were smoking or maybe they mm-hmm. weren't exercising or, or, or this and that. But, but you make a conclusion, but that conclusion is not necessarily the cause. Can you explain the difference between causality and causation? So I hope you picked up on that stupid little goof that I said. I went back and listened to this years later and was like so embarrassed that I goofed that up. If you notice, I said, what's the difference between causality and causation? Uh, so that's pretty much the exact same thing. What I meant to say is correlation and causation. So anyway, let's get back to the episode. Yeah, well, there can be there can be correlation, you know, between yeah, someone who who smokes and who who dies earlier, but you don't necessarily know that that caused it unless you do a one hundred percent controlled clinical trial where you are able to control for the fact that, you know, I mean, another way to say this is is to say that someone during the nineteen nineties who maybe ate ate meat. Um, maybe those people died more than people who didn't eat meat. And, and it would be easy to say, well, I think it's the meat that killed all these people. But also during that time, you know, they were being told not to eat meat. And, and those people who were eating meat may have also done other things that they were told not to do, such as smoke cigarettes or, you know, <laughs> do other unhealthy things that they, they obviously weren't, weren't adherers. You know, they, 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 uh, there may have been other confounding factors that that caused them to die younger uh, or earlier. And so unless you can factor for all the possible confounding factors, uh, which is very difficult to do in an observational study, 
um, then you can't rely on that on that information as being causal. It's correlation. It's correlated with uh, the outcome, but it, you can't say that it caused the outcome unless you can 100% control the trial. And you can control every bite of food. You can you can um, then measure the difference between you know changing just one thing, like was done in some. Uh, trials in the 1960s in Minnesota coronary experiment is a good example of that. And we talk about that in the film where there was a, basically a captive <laughs> cohort that lived in um, uh, mental facilities and uh, nursing homes. And they uh, did the study where they just changed one thing, basically swapping out um, margarine for butter and compared the differences in um, all-cause mortality, heart attacks, and death. And, and uh, that was a controlled clinical trial, what's called the gold standard of, of evidence. And what they found is not what they wanted to find, because they found that the, the group that, that consumed the vegetable oil actually died more than the butter group. So... Unfortunately, that evidence was buried, kind of hidden away and, and not shared with the public. I've, I'm so glad, so glad you brought this one up. This is exactly what you're talking about, a randomized controlled trial. We have two groups of people. They're not going anywhere. They're identical in every single way we can control them. And we feed one group one thing and another group another thing, and we follow them for several years and see what happens. And the dude who does the study, I think is quoted as saying something like, yeah, the, the, we were really disappointed that we didn't find what we wanted to find. The data mm -hmm. gets buried. And I, I just heard, you know, a few years ago, this on a podcast on one of Malcolm Gladwell's podcasts, where the son mm -hmm. of the guy who did the study had to go digging through his, his, you know, now deceased father's basement to find any of the data. That is not science. Yeah. Yeah, we we I actually spoke with him. I spoke with the son of Ivan Franz. Oh, wow. Um I was not able to interview him for the film, but um yeah, I mean his dad was a consummate scientist. He I mean, to his credit, he kept meticulous uh, you know, documentation on that study. So once the documentation was found, yeah, you know, the the records are there. Um it's it's interesting to think about why that wasn't published um and it may not have been you know the fault of of ivan franz it may have been people above him mm. that had him you know not share that evidence I, it, that's unclear still to this day but um yeah kind of fascinating they had to go dig through the family basement to find all the records So absolutely love that clip from Jen. And I love that she mentioned the Minnesota coronary trial, which is a really famous trial that was done in the 1970s, like we mentioned. Uh, it may, be sure to look it up. It's really interesting the way they did it. And they did it very, very well and still could not prove that saturated fat was in any way detrimental. And in fact, more people were harmed eating things like vegetable oil and margarine than they were from eating the saturated fat that came from animal products. And they really just buried the data. They didn't release it. They didn't you know, scrutinize it at all. They were just disappointed 
and so they buried it. It's it's interesting to think back what would have happened if they would have published that, and we would have you know started trying to find a different way forward way back then in the 1970s and the 1980s when we were coming out with our. Um, you know, the government guidelines and the food pyramids and all that stuff that really c- correlates so well with an explosion of obesity and diabetes. It's really pretty sad, but interesting to go back and check out that study. We are going to go to Chris Cornell, a really inspiring guy who has a very familiar story as well. He's another person who isn't exactly a household name, but he's doing really great work. We interviewed him on episode 325 of Balanced Body Radio. I thought he had a great story. I thought he had great tips. So let's listen to Chris Cornell and hear his story. For decades, I struggled on and off with uh, with weight gain and weight loss, and uh, it was it was just uh, revolu- revolutionized my life when I learned how to control my weight, and that's led to a whole uh, domino uh, sequence of events that have uh, helped me in other areas as well. Yeah, that's amazing. Do most people just think you found a time travel machine and just like went backwards, <laughs> reverse aging? <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's um, it, it's it's interesting. Um, the I, you know, having found low carb and having uh, found a way to improve my health and uh, my appearance and my quality of life, I've also uh, come in contact with a lot of other people who have experienced some of the same benefits. So hanging out in this group of people, um, I'm, I'm not such an anomaly, actually. Uh, I know in the, um, the general population, uh, it's not quite the same. Yeah, it definitely is not. You look at some of the people that are in our world and like the Mark Sissons and the Brad Kearns and the Sean Bakers, all these people, you know, who are aging, but looking like they're getting younger and younger and younger as the years go on. It's really quite remarkable, especially when you compare it to what, like what you mentioned, the general population, that Delta just keeps getting wider and wider and wider. And it's really apparent when you go out and go to the mall or the airport, like we're, we're not, we're not doing great. No, we we are not, and uh, the the some of what I see going on in the uh, the mainstream nutrition and medical fields with respect to the attitudes towards obesity uh, and metabolic disease is kind of disturbing. I think that uh, uh, the average person could you know do a lot more for their health um, just with with lifestyle changes. And I know there's other issues, and there's there's other other solutions that can be a part of that, but um, I definitely don't think that it's appropriate to have people filled with the idea that they are completely helpless and cannot, uh, you know, make changes that will improve their life. And that that goes for just about every area of your life. There's there's things you can do to take control and, and improve your situation. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And on that note, don't you believe that it would be easier than most people think? Not that it's going to be super easy, but if people realized the simple things that they could do, that it wouldn't be as big of a pain or the reward would be far greater than what people think it might be. Yes. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Um, I mean, I, uh, using, using the wrong information, uh, some things are, are literally impossible to solve. Um, and I, I was always the kind of person that tried to figure things out on my own. And, uh, you know, that worked for certain things. You know, I learned how to replace pipes in my kitchen. I re- I learned how to do some minor electrical work. Um, but you know, I also, you know, when I didn't know how to do something, I, I would typically, uh, just for my own safety, ask someone for some help and some guidance to try to avoid the problems, um, with weight loss. You know, I was literally just following the wrong information. You know, it's like uh, I restrict calories and exercise more sounds great. 
Um, and there's some small bits of truth to that, but without um, additional knowledge, a lot of people just find themselves on a, uh, you know, a, a endless cycle of losing weight and gaining weight. And, uh, and then when I finally one day in uh, January of 2018 reached out to a friend who I, I knew had some knowledge and I asked for a recommendation for a book and he came back with uh, Tobbs's Why We Get Fat, uh, that single book was the catalyst that got me going on this journey and, uh, and led me to a whole bunch of other things. But the change was almost instantaneous. Um, it, it happened. I was in the waiting, the waiting area of a Mexican restaurant, um, on my daughter, my daughter's 16th birthday. And I was reading on a Kindle, uh, that, that book by Tobbs and all of a sudden, you know, a light went off or on and it just, it, I just said, wait a second. I, I think I understand this. And I changed what I ordered at dinner that night. And I literally never looked back. Um, wow. you know, I lost, I, I lost weight consistently, uh, with, with really almost no exceptions. Uh, I've had no, no relapses. You know, I've had a couple of bad days, but, uh, you know, it's been, it's been, uh, unbelievable. Um, so, I, you know, I'm down 80 pounds. It's, it's, it's now, um, I'm just about at four years of being at my goal weight at or below 205 pounds. Um, oh, and, and I've actually added, I've probably added a bunch of muscle, um, from, you know, when I first got to that goal weight since then, I've, I've, my body fat has continued to go down, even though my weight has not. So I'm, uh, I'm doing better on just about every count. Yeah, that's amazing. And it's so obvious to see when you see the pictures and, and you know, what you're doing, you're running a lot, you're doing a lot of weightlifting, but, it, but when you look at your physical appearance, like it's, it's totally apparent that you have completely recompositioned your body. And it's amazing that we can do that at really any age. It just, it, it requires the right information. When we're, when we're talking about your story, let's back up a bit and talk about your, your journey into unhealth. Uh, tell us, you know, some of the things that, that you noticed, um, not only the weight gain, but also other things that kind of went along with that and what things you tried along the way before you got that great book recommendation? You know, I've, I've, I went up and down in weight quite a bit, uh, ever since even, you know, towards the end of my last couple of years of college, I, I, I was gaining a few pounds. I was not obese by any stretch. Um, I was very active and, but I was slowly, you know, gaining weight. I, I really never was at, um, what they call a healthy weight. Um, uh, but, after I got out of college, I had a lot of uh, work, a lot of jobs that required sitting at a desk for long hours. And, you know, within two years of being out of college, I got up to like a 40 inch waist size. And, um, you know, my weight was creeping up over 230. And, uh, you know, it's hard to remember exactly the, the you know, the, the sequence. But over the years, you know, I would I would lose 10 pounds and gain 15 pounds. And and before I, you know, before long, um, you know, I was up over 250. And then uh, in my late 40s, it just kept climbing. And uh, um, I and, and then there was a long time when I never stepped on a scale. So I didn't really realize how heavy I'd gotten. And it was one day when I was 51. Um, I stepped on a scale at my mother's house and I saw 278 pounds. And I think it's sort of a vicious circle. You know, you you, you gain the weight, you become less likely to enjoy doing some of the things, uh, the, the move more type of things like hiking up a mountain or going for a run becomes less enjoyable. So you spend more time, uh, sitting around, um, and, 
and certainly the diet wasn't helping me. You know, I, I was eating a lot of uh, refined carbs and other foods that are not, not good for your, your metabolism. And I was always stopping at convenience stores and, and just eating, eating foods that were not, uh, not helpful to me. Um, and so, so even, even when I first got to, to that 278 pounds and realized I had to do something, I didn't know what to do. I cut out, sh um, sugary drinks and I lost like 15 pounds, but it was still a up and down thing until I found that, that book. Um, and ooh, let's see the reaching out and asking someone for help, um, was important for a couple of reasons because it, it was sort of like making, it wasn't a completely public uh, thing, but it was reaching out to someone else who, once I asked for his recommendation, I sort of felt like I had to remain accountable to at least read the book that he recommended for me. And uh, just that alone, you know, reading, reading a book and, and, and giving it an honest, um, you know, look into what, what was being talked about. There must be a reason why this guy recommended the book. Um, you know, he chose one book out of many for me. Um, and, and that one principle alone is something I've gone back to many times since, like if I want to learn something about running, um, and I have access to somebody that knows a lot about running, I'll say, Hey, uh, you know, like Zach Bitter, the former hundred mile, uh, world record holder, uh, in the hundred mile run, you know, I, I had a couple of opportunities to talk to him, ask for book recommendation, ask for article recommendations. Same thing with other people like Brady Homer, who has been giving me some coaching along the way um, for my now half marathon training. Uh, these people know infinitely more than I'll ever know about running. Why not tap into their knowledge when you have a chance to ask for some help and, uh, you know, get helps get from somebody else, get some ideas to where you should focus your energies. And, and I do that in all areas of my life now. And it's, it's been, it's been very helpful. That's such a great lesson to learn. Why do you think more of us don't do that? Why, why do we think we have all the answers or we just trust the mainstream versus seeking out and finding and, and hiring the experts in the field and, and compensating them fairly for, you know, for that information? I, I feel like most of us would rather, you know, buy uh, the, the sexy meal plan or, you know, buy the sexy workout equipment that's the newest thing on the block versus hiring a coach who knows what they've been doing and they've been in the field for, you know, 20, 30 years. Well, that's a, a great question. And, and for one, I think there is one, one answer to the reason why people don't do that is because they don't know who to ask. Um, it requires some discernment. Um, there are good coaches out there who are well worth every penny that you spend with them. And there's uh, coaches out there that are not good. Um, uh, and if, you know, if you make the, the wrong decision, people are afraid to make the wrong decision. Um, you don't necessarily want to just reach out to um, you know, a sort of uh, somebody that you don't have 100% confidence in and just put your whole life in their hands. So you've got to, you've got to balance that. And, uh, you know, finding a good coach would, would be, would be life-changing for a lot of people. It's just, how do you do that? And what I've, you know, I've, I've learned through Twitter that by getting involved in a community, you ask some questions, you look at the answers, you try to, you try to gauge uh, you, you can't tell whether someone's for real just by asking them one question, but if you follow their answers and you read into them and you check them and you verify, um, you can start to get an idea as to who is talking sense and who is not. Um, 
there's another thing that some people are right about a lot of things and they're wrong about something. You've got to always keep yourself open to that. Um, uh, and then, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just, yeah, I, I think, I think that's really it. You know, you, you've, you've got to find the right people to go to. You've got to make a lot of decisions on your own and you got to learn to trust some of your instincts. Um, uh, but then you've got to, you know, where, when you find someone that you trust, you can start to put more of your um, outcome in their hands. Once you, once you feel like they're going to give you good advice, you can start, you can really start using that advice to your benefit. Yeah. You made so many really good points there. And I just want to point out like Twitter specifically, somebody in my neighborhood just put out a tweet. It was about a week ago. It was something about like cardio. Should I be doing cardio? And all of these like answers came through with all these people that had very specific things and why it was great. None of them asked any questions like good for what, what, what are your goals? What are you training for? There was, it was like definitive, like here, here's what you have to do. And so to me, that's a great barometer to look at those people and say like, well, you guys are probably not the people I want to be hiring as a coach versus somebody like you mentioned, Zach Bitter. We just hosted Zach Bitter for the second time. We did an episode all about nutrition for endurance athletes. And the number of times that he said, I don't know, it depends. It, there's so much nuance to it. Zach Bitter is an amazing coach, an amazing human, because he considers all of those things before saying like, yeah, go, go zero carb. And this is your running program. And like, there's so much nuance. And I think that's a really great way to find those good coaches because it can get very confusing out there. Again. Yeah. Again, more, more excellent points. It's, um, I, I mean, you know, I had the opportunity to speak to Zach and, and ask him questions. And he, you know, if you ask, if you ask some people about, can you, can you run effectively and efficiently with a low carb diet? Um, their first answer will be no. And then you look at somebody like Zach and you're like, well, all right, even if a low carb diet isn't optimal for every form of exercise, here's a guy that is setting world records, um, running, running, He's running his 100th mile of a 100 mile race faster than I can run <laughs> one mile. I have faster than I could probably run a half a mile. I could keep get a, I could meet up with Zach at the 99 and a half mile mark, and I wouldn't be able to keep up with him to the finish if I was fresh. So the guy must know a, a, a couple of things. You know, it's um, it's it, it is you know it's it's mind blowing that uh, some people are so absolute and uh, and lack nuance. Yeah, totally. In that episode that we did with him, we talked about somebody who's in the endurance world more on the female side of things. And she would just come right out and say, you cannot do endurance sports on low carbohydrate and women cannot do intermittent fasting. And it's like, well, you're, you're just closing the door. You're, there's no discussion there. If you say that can't be done, I have clients that are doing it. So first of all, it can be done. And some people might prefer that. And Zach had just a wonderful way of working around that and, and saying like, okay, if you choose to do this, here are some things to be mindful of. And, and and yeah, I, I just think that's a really great way to find the good people who are really going to help you along the way. Thank you so very much for listening to this special episode taken from the Boundless Body Radio premium podcast. If you haven't already, please follow our show on Apple Podcasts and be sure to leave us a rating and review on that platform as it is the best way to continue to get our message out to new people all over the world. And as we said in the introduction, feel free to book a 30-minute complimentary session with us on our website at myboundlessbody.com so we can discuss your health and fitness goals and help you come up with a plan. Thank you so very much, as always, for listening to Boundless Body Radio.